0: I would hope that cyber insurance is different to some types of insurance which are seen very much as a you know in case of emergency break glass the bat phone you know um keep policy in the drawer, and you hope you never have to use it what i would say for a cyber insurance policy is if you've bought the right policy it should be providing you value from day one Welcome to
1: Tech Insurance Leaders, the podcast that positions you at the forefront of the digital insurance landscape. Join me, Louisa Weix, as I interview chief claims officers, tech officers, claims directors, and other claims professionals about cutting edge insurance products, complex claims surrounding ad tech, artificial intelligence, data security, and more. Here, you'll gain the knowledge and guidance you need to thrive in the fast paced world of modern insurance. Thanks for tuning in and let's get started. Today, Raf Sanchez joins us. He is Global Head of Cyber Services at Beasley. Raf Sanchez, welcome to our show. Louisa, thank you for having me on. Oh, our pleasure. So tell me, tell our guests a little bit about your role and responsibilities at Beasley.
0: Sure. So uh, as you said, I'm I'm the head of cyber services at Beasley. Beasley is a specialty insurer and my world is really cyber, cyber insurance and cyber risk. And the cyber services team has been around for a while. We, we have worn various hats, but essentially we're an in-house incident response team. And we've evolved somewhat into more of a risk management, a proactive approach, but really the core of what we do is, is incident response. And how did you get into this field? So, I started off as an intellectual property lawyer, <laughs> of course I was, I was brought up in the u k and uh I quite wanted to be an architect, but my mother said i didn't have the uh the the talent for architecture which was <laughs> which was nice of her so she said, sort of, you know be an attorney, you don't have to be particularly talented, you just have to read lots of books and and you'll get a job so with that very um uh, <laughs> Uh, inspiring message behind me. I, I became an attorney and yes, intellectual property and kind of technology outsourcings. And basically, I eventually wound up at one of our clients, which was a big US investment bank. And when I had started to get into this area, it's really when European, UK and European data protection, data privacy laws or coming to the fore and organizations were worried about compliance. And I, I seemed to be in the natural fit, mainly because no one else wanted to do it, for the kind of privacy and uh, data protection hat. So I got into first of all privacy compliance. That's really what started off my my journey towards cyber incident response. And and once you're doing compliance, incident response or or privacy incidents, privacy errors is is really how i got into it so the first five years of of what i would call incident response i was pretty much doing lost laptops uh lost physical files so not a huge amount of malicious activity but but that really picked up as my as my career kind of moved on and in addition to the kind of shift from from legal strict legal to kind of in-house and Incident response. I also moved countries. I initially practiced in in the UK and worked in the UK. I then moved to and lived in in Hong Kong and Asia for about eleven years. And I had time in in Hong Kong and in Japan. It was very useful for me as a as a as a working person to understand different approaches, different cultures, particularly b- business cultures. How do you get things done? Yep. It is is very different in for example a US organization and a Japanese organization. So that was interesting to me.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really true, is that, you know, you to be effective, you have to understand how they make decisions. And if you don't understand that, you're just going to be missing and nothing is going to be nothing
0: is going to happen the way it should. A- absolutely. I mean, I think particularly if you are a in the fields of, you know, compliance, legal, IT, if you're in a field where you may not be the revenue generating function of the business, <laughs> you, what you don't want to do, claims, claims <laughs> yes, claims, incident response for for a carrier. I I really operate through consent, right? I need buy-in from my business partners, and the worst. Way of getting that is to force people, right? No, nobody wants to be forced to do something. You, you, the, the, the creativity, if there is any in, in this area is finding out what is the value that you can bring to your business partner, to your counterparty, to your clients in a, in a cyber, cyber insurance perspective. What is it that you have of value to them? I think if you can find that and there usually is something. Yeah, if you can find that, that's your best way of achieving your your goals, personal, professional, but particularly yes, in 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 organizations that have very different leadership cultures, styles, and motivations. So that's a, I think a key trick to, to to that area.
1: Oh, I think that's in life generally. People so often, especially frankly, Americans, we come in, you know. Guns are blazing. And, you know, that kind of, you know, approach oftentimes just causes people to retreat and to put up protection, instead of opening you up to a collaboration.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's something very attractive about that confidence. I, I would say, you know, the American enthusiasm and optimism is is, is a feature that I have come across in my working life, and that's great. And some cultures, yes, initially uh, don't react maybe the way you would you would hope they would react to that. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, many organisations now are operating internationally. Even some of the the large, you know, very yeah. U- you know U.S. focused investment banks for, for whom I worked, I would get in the elevator and I would hear four or five languages being spoken. And to me, that showed that no matter the, you know, the org structure and, and and who was at the top, there was a bunch of people with very different approaches and very different cultures. And so there's always something you can, you can latch onto, but equally, yes, large organizations need, need more structure. I think they need more fixed rules, playbooks, uh, protocols, hierarchies, because they just get too big to manage through, you know, yeah. consensus so what is your
1: approach to incident response what how do you view the the most effective
0: approach sure so again we, our role is a cyber insurance company we we provide cyber insurance to organizations and our approach to incident response is to realize that there are multiple stakeholders, again, who we need to, from whom we need some level of cooperation or collaboration. So we do not come in with a fixed playbook, uh, a fixed set of rules, and say, this needs to happen in this way, because every organization we help is different and new to us. In some cases, we will have had some exposure to that organization. We may have had an introductory call. They may have had some kind of proactive service from us. But in many cases, we, this is the first interaction that they have with their cyber insurance company. And there are lots of stereotypes about what insurance companies do and how they make their money. But the reality for or Beasley and probably for many other cyber carriers is the incident response the the, the, the the competence of the incident response, the quality, the speed is what is ultimately going to save the most money both for the victim organization and the insurance company. So our interests are aligned and I think that is our main approach. We come in and we we effectively say how can we help? We are not here to dictate. We are here to help you because if we help you, you will suffer less of a loss, as will we. So, playbooks have their uh, have their place, SOPs, other you know, operating procedures, but really it's about adapting ourselves to their way of working.
1: What advice do you have for insurance who have just purchased a cyber
0: policy? I would say that. I I would hope that cyber insurance is different to some types of insurance, which are seen very much as a, you know, in case of emergency, break glass, the bat phone, you know, um, (laughs) policy in the drawer and you hope you never have to use it. The what I would say for a cyber insurance policy is if you've bought the right policy, it should be providing you value from day one. So again, it's not just Beasley, other cyber insurance carriers are very keen to engage with their clients. And again, it's because there is value both both to the insurance carrier, but also to the client of that engagement. We have incidents that you you could literally predict the way they're going to go. And so what we see is certain risks, which are possibly not mitigated, will lead to, it's almost like, you know, it, it, we are inevitably even going down a certain path. So it is in our interests as the insurance carrier to, to speak with our clients and say, <clears throat> you know, if you don't take this step, we see this happening in 80% of cases. So I would say to any organization that has cyber insurance, you've paid potentially a lot of money for something. Don't treat it as a, it's not a get out of jail free card, but it's also not a, you know, worst case scenario product. It is something that you should be able to get value from. And when I say you, whether you are the CISO or the general counsel or the finance director or the head of marketing, cyber risks are not technology problems. Cyber risks are problems for everyone in the enterprise and cyber insurance is aiming to help the enterprise, the business, the school, the hospital, um, the charity, whatever the organization is we're protecting, our goal is to help it recover from, mitigate the damage of a cyber incident. So it's absolutely something that there is value there to be had throughout the, the policy year.
1: Yeah, I think that's especially true now uh, in the last three years or so, where you're seeing these, um, malicious actors exfiltrating before they encrypt and, and then having that, you know, that information that they, that can cause such a reputational harm and muck about with, you know, the trade secrets and, and embarrassing emails and financial information, um, that really has spread that. That, you know, bad things can happen all across the company when you have an incident.
0: Yeah, and, and, and the modern cyber threat actors are good. They are good <laughs> at what they do. They have a ton of tools at their disposal. The tools are cheap or free. The, the way that software is developed, I'll be honest, right, prioritizes commercial gain over security most commercial software is is not you know controlling an airplane so there aren't fallbacks you know the code can be complicated features can be added because the company needs to shift copies to meet q4 targets so something might be released in a not completely final (laughs) state and and Yet these organizations are operating possibly on thin margins. They're in a very competitive environment. You know, if they go down for three weeks, their competitors are waiting there to scoop up their clients. So insurance is not the be all and end all. It's not the magic bullet, but neither is that security tool that you just had a a demo on and it has lovely Dashboards and and you know you can present pie charts to the to the board of the risk that has decreased. The risk is never zero, and so insurance is is part of helping organisations to be resilient to have multiple tools at their disposal. Because yes, the reality is, Louisa, it's not just about well we'll be down for a day or two. You know that new CEO who's just who's just been brought on board is going to be shamed uh, publicly because threat actors have copies of their you know, Q3 results that are going to be published yeah. in a week. Or they have, in, in some cases, they will have copies of you know, onboarding documents for, for employees. We had one incident where an insured was absolutely adamant they would not pay the threat actor. The ransomware group were not going to get any money out of them until the board realised that all of their personal documents passport copies you know uh this was in 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 europe so there weren't social security numbers but that, that kind of doc, documentation yeah. was there and they immediately said right we, we need to pay we want to pay for this <laughs> so um it's uh yeah the the leverage these threat actors have is is deployed quite effectively yeah
1: well and they've been in there a little while they kind of know where the hot spots are and and can just
0: you know push that button (laughs) and when you say they you know there could be multiple threat actors we have incidents where we have two or three threat actors in the environment and so you know it it is complex people (laughs) are in the middle of projects moving to the cloud they are acquiring new entities and trying to integrate them into their estate this isn't like a you know a single bunch of infrastructural people every year they are they have new products they have new regions they have new offices and and they are moving between one platform to another they're moving from on prem to the cloud so figuring out and and you know making sure there is not a single weakness in that infrastructure in those in those processes those policies is, is pretty much impossible yeah
1: what would, what would you advise insureds who are experiencing an incident to do? What, what are the things they should immediately do and what
0: should they not do? I think they should immediately look to engage with any help they, they have. So as an example, it, it, the cyber insurance may be treated as a, as a worst case scenario. There may be an, an excess a retention. Of let's say $100,000. And an organization might be tempted to think, well, I don't think this is going to cost us $100,000. So we won't contact our insurance carrier. But I'll tell you what, if we get to like 90000 we will. And t- to me, that, that kind of defies the point of yes, the insurance carrier is not paying until you reach 100000 But again, you are going to be able to interact with professionals who've seen what's happening to you multiple times. You'll be able to talk to maybe vendors who have uh, a skill set that, that perhaps your vendor roster doesn't have. You might be able to access cheaper rates from your carrier for those experts. So I would advise any organization to treat a cyber incident um, properly and, and, and seriously. It, it's, it''s almost you can you can compare it to a, a medical issue, right? there are going to be some things which are pretty obvious you, you you fall over and you scrape your hands okay that's fine if your hand doesn't heal after two two or three days you know you might have an infection and sometimes these things are visible if you if you injure your hand but sometimes these things are not and it is it is very tempting to kind of say well you know it doesn't seem to have had a major impact we'll we'll just move on but Do you have a threat actor in your environment? Do you have a process that is going to allow this to happen again in a worse way? So talking to experts, we hope, would allow you to identify these kinds of these these gaps or maybe these these um, misapprehensions or misunderstandings about the nature of a cyber incident. I I would also say don't overreact. Uh, There is there is. One of the features I think of incidents is ah uh, um is knowledge gaps. In the first day, you know almost nothing about the incident. Mm-hmm. In the first week, you'll you'll start filling in those gaps. And if you are a senior stakeholder in an organization, you're going to have a lot of questions, and ideally, you want people who understand the the issues to fill in those gaps for you to to provide those answers. So that's why I think you should engage with experts early. Right.
1: And I think also, you may have questions as a senior person in a company that's experiencing an incident, you have certain questions, you may not have all the questions you should have. And so bringing an expert in can alert you, did you think of this? Or have you done this? You know, have you reviewed your contracts? Have you Do you have notification to your client obligations, which are might be different than legal obligations. Um, so there are, you know, if you're going through something the first time, why wouldn't you want someone who
0: does this for a living? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. And, and stakeholders do worry, right? They worry about their cyber insurance carrier raising their premium. They worry about information leaking and getting to a regulator. But you're right. There are some questions that you, you may not have realized might provide you with a solution. And it's only by by approaching a third party that they can help you. A good example of that, as you say, Louisa, is if you suffer a supply chain incident, if one of your vendors is compromised, now you are really looking to, to your contracts with that vendor, even your commercial relationship. If you're a big client of that vendor, is there something you can do you know, to essentially apply pressure to get an outcome that, that you need? Is it appropriate that you have to wait two weeks to be told if your customer data has been impacted? Probably not, because in an ideal scenario, you're, you're notifying regulators within their, their timeframes. So you're right. Sometimes it's even about asking the right questions.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things I saw recently, too, is on these vendor, uh, the vendor incidents. We've been seeing class actions brought not against the vendor. They're not even a party. They're brought against the company who employed the vendor for their negligence in allowing the information to be given to the vendor. And so it's kind of, you think a vendor will take care of something. Well, if you're have a lawsuit for your own negligence in employing that vendor, you know, they're not, you can hope that you have a good relationship and they'll take care of you, but that's not a guarantee.
0: Yes, I, and I can think of so many instances where that's the case. the The vendor is a small software company which is providing, you know, one of three or four solutions in a particular service type, and the terms and conditions are completely boilerplate. You know, there's the only thing you as client are getting are service credits. Yeah, uh, there's no there's no indemnities, there's no product warranties. And absolutely, you know, who, who is the class going to go against? They're going to go against the deep, the person with deep pockets. So there is risk there. And, and there's a limited amount that you can do with respect to that counterparty. You, you're just not going to be able to recover from them financially. Now, and, and again, this is about, you know, what you can do with experts, whether they're someone like, you know, our team or anyone else is, as an example, data minimization, which is a not very exciting topic. No one wants to talk about data categorization. No, I do. <laughs> well, this I'm, is I'm near and dear to
1: my heart. It's like, why do people have this data?
0: <laughs> uh, absolutely. I, I mean, the the most troublesome incidents we have, and I I, I hear these words coming out of stakeholders' mouths, and I, I want to put my head in my hands. Things like, you know, we're we're transitioning to the cloud, and we have this lovely cloud database on a on a brand new platform, latest technology. You know, it's it it knows what RAF has done, you know, what contacts he's viewed, what he's printed out, what he's exported. But the threat actor has found the legacy database that has everything going back to like nineteen eighty seven. <laughs> that's running on a Windows ninety five machine in a broom closet somewhere, and that data is there just in case. Well, you know, we were just waiting to see if the the cloud migration went to plan, so we, we we just kind of kept everything. So we have small professional services firms who are a great target ransomware threat actors because of the nature of the data they hold. So. Yeah. Particularly law firms, right? They, they will hold anti money laundering, know your customer yep. documents, very personal information. If they are doing corporate work, they will have, you know, sensitive non public information. And we see cases where we're spending a few hundreds of thousands of dollars to mitigate the incident, but there are millions of dollars spent on, on e discovery, document review and notification. And so, no, no, well, very few CISOs, CIOs are screaming about spending money on data minimization and data retention rules because, frankly, users just want to store stuff. They, they they don't want to be told, well, you know, if it's this type of data, then you can store it for three years, and if it's this type of data, you can store it for seven years. I know because I have been involved in those. Types of compliance programs again in a previous life in the banks, and it's just a massive pain for the users. Now, I don't know if the technology has changed a lot now, but that is a massive challenge. I think there's huge value in data minimization. I agree.
1: And you know, even beyond like incident response and everything like that. Everybody's saving it because they go that email might save us, you know, in litigation someday. I've got to save all my emails because, you know, I'm I've laid out the record there. I will tell you there is no case that was won by an email. They're only lost. Though, you know, yeah. the, the there's only bad emails and once you no longer have an obligation to maintain that stuff, you should delete it.
0: <laughs> I, I completely agree. As you say, there is only really risk attached to storing that stuff. There's there's zero value. Yeah. Uh, we, we we had a case recently where we were looking to some emails from two thousand twenty one, and uh, we I, I made a big effort of, of getting them out of of kind of the online archive. and involved a process. We looked. It was just they were completely useless. They were completely out of date. The, the data was no longer relevant. So yeah. again, it's another example of how sometimes the value you could get from whether it's a cyber insurance IR team or any other team could be really helpful to you maybe you're running a project on data minimization and you need a justification or you want examples of where not appropriately discarding information was a problem and and your carrier could probably give you hundreds of examples Well,
1: and I, I also, you know, what we really need is a vendor that will go in and identify, okay, your, this is your, these are your obligations to maintain. This is what you have in your system. This is what can be deleted because many organizations, especially small organizations, they don't have the tools to go figure out what they need to be saving and what they can throw away. And they're, they're going to err on the side of saving it when in truth, they probably should err the other way, you know, like, the, it the it's kind of what what is the baseline? The baseline is do we need to keep it? Yes. <laughs> Not can we get rid of it? <laughs> but
0: I completely agree. Yeah.
1: Anyways, I hope somebody will launch their little startup to help companies. You know, especially small companies. You know, come in and perform that service because I think it would help the entire ecosphere if we just didn't have every single email ever sent. Uh-
0: agreed and its it's it's much easier now, right because everything's in the cloud it's cheap, it almost costs nothing so it's uh it's a bit like I don't know clearing up the pantry it, it's one of those things uh, I know there are like eight <laughs> almost empty jam jars you know that, that somebody needs to just go in and figure out right we do not need these anymore, um but because i' I'm, I'm, I'm a dad, I'm like, no no you, you never know when that's. <laughs> when you need the apricot one (laughs) yes you know um so uh but yes it's definitely a problem that needs solving yeah well i i i'm glad you brought it up
1: because i i actually am passionate about that one because i deal with it every day in my my my, you know in our company and um i just i don't know why it is considered sort of uh, an uninteresting topic because to me it's the there's so much value in getting people not to save everything. Um, but so we should move on though because I'm sure not everyone shares my enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, what is something you or your team have recently achieved that you're really proud of?
0: Um, I would say. We have one thing is we're really changing who we've been hiring. I am an attorney. The team used to mainly basically just be attorneys. And what we realized and and I think we've we've known this for a while, this you know, our approach to incident response is to really be open to different ways of working that our clients have. And I think our ability to attract people from different backgrounds. We have somebody join our team from a retail background. We have people from very technical backgrounds like threat intel analysts. So I'm very proud that not being a, you know, insurance is not the word that comes off your mind when you think of, you know, extremely enticing. It doesn't scream Silicon Valley. It doesn't scream, uh, you know, it's not Instagrammable. Uh, insurance is not seen <laughs> as particularly exciting industry, I would say. Yeah. Now, insurance enables companies to do really exciting things, right? You know, the the first getting the first satellite in space, yeah, um, uh, carrying cargos of spice, uh, you know, across uncharted oceans hundred and fifty years ago. So, insurance enables organisations to do things and to accept risks that they might not have done otherwise. But at the end of the day, you know, we don't have the you know, we don't have the foosball table. Well, actually, we do have a foosball table in our London office. Um, <laughs> but, you know, your offices are terrific, actually. All of our them. offices are good. But we're no, we're no Google in the sense of, you know, having uh, uh, pizzas on tap and, and and cans of soda and stuff. But anyway, we, we have managed to attract really good people, including attorneys, but also from up uh, from other other backgrounds. And I think that's, that's a great advert for Beasley's focus on culture and, and focus on, on quality of, of working life. So I, I, I really am happy about that. I'm also happy that, for example, you know, we have two individuals in a, in a particular geographic region going on parental leave. Beasley offers six months parental leave and that is not a problem, right? We want people to have the ability to do that and realize the job is still there. We're gonna survive. We're gonna adapt. We're gonna put a process in place. um, And and we want people to have those choices open to them. So those are two things. They're not strictly related to incident response, but they're two things I'm quite proud of for our team. Yeah,
1: no, I think that's right. And I uh, I love the idea of bringing in people with different backgrounds and non-attorneys. I have an IP background before I went into insurance. And, you know, when I handle an IP claim, it's great. People assume that I'm not going to know anything and I don't speak her language and they're going to have to, you know, that I don't really get it. And when I can interact with them and say "Absolutely, I understand that point, you know like that it makes such a difference and so, if you are dealing with a retail incident and you have someone with retail experience who can come in and say yeah i I see your I understand exactly what you're worried about, and that's a that's a really smart way to build a team
0: uh, yeah absolutely and it it just gives you a it just gives you insights you wouldn't have if you were all you know, IP lawyers or all any particular, you know, specialty. Yeah.
1: And, you know, diversity is the same thing. It's like if you're all people coming from the exact same school's background, you know, experience in life, you have a very one-dimensional view of the world.
0: And you miss so much. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, I... I have perspective as the father of a daughter. So I'm very focused on gender, but I'm also focused on the fact that you know, if you look at certain industries, including insurance, once you get to kind of my level, let's call it middle management, upper middle management, people of color, women, there, there are certain groups that are very underrepresented. So I am absolutely committed you know, for my team to make sure we do nothing that you know there's always personal circumstance and that's that's fine but there is nothing intrinsically in our organization that is favoring one group or another um i have been on too many panels where i i look around louisa and it's it's middle-aged white dudes (laughs) And, and that's that's not good for the industry that's not good for the message you're sending out yeah and so less people like me that's all we need and uh I, I am i am I, I'm
1: not going to agree with that point but we need well, more people like you that
0: understand that difference that understand well, yes.
1: that that's a problem
0: yeah uh, i but i'm in 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 the english would say i'm the turkey voting for christmas or the turkey voting for thanksgiving so uh but i'm i'm doing that willingly so i
1: um did you hear about the panel that had made up women like there was a no. conference, there was a tech conference and they made up women profiles as speakers in order to be able to attract some of the people. And I think the conference has now been canceled after it's come to light. Like a lot of the actual people that were speaking were like, I'm not going to speak with you. I don't want to be associated with you anymore. Yeah. Like how hard is it to ask a woman to be on a panel? Like they will say yes in two seconds like women want to be on speakers they want to be on panels you know it's not hard to get them you don't have to make them up
0: (laughs) no it's 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 scary i think it's just i do think that uh, well this is a a massive generalization men seem to find it easier to kind of self-promote uh that uh, you know as an example if we're at a social function you know my wife is like you go and talk to those people i'm no interested in in meeting them they're trying to you know uh network you go do that uh i naturally talk too much but anyway yeah you have to be thoughtful you have to look at who you're inviting to a conference who you're inviting to speak and just think is this interesting am i just going to hear the same thing from these four four people do i want to hear something a bit different so um, yes, it's, it's not a difficult problem to fix.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, w- let's see. I wanted to ask the flip side of the proud question. Is there a failure you've experienced that changed the way you approach incident response? So, and by failure, I don't know, is, is there, was there something that didn't go the way you wanted it to go and it's changed yeah. your approach?
0: Yes, a couple, a couple of. So, with incidents, I think that the failures I've experienced personally when I've been actually running incidents is that kind of um, not acknowledging and respecting the position I was in. So, assuming that somebody was going to follow my lead because I shouted loudly enough or scared people into saying. You know, this is a bad thing will happen if you don't do what I tell you to, and and I think I realized that pretty early on that that just is not going to get me the results I need. So, from a personal perspective, that shaped me as a as an individual who's involved in incidents. I think, as as a as a kind of manager, I hesitate to use the word leader, but somebody who manages a team and is in charge of shaping. Strategy or direction. I think I was also at times too optimistic about what platforms or technology or automation might achieve. I think there was a big chatbot kind of um phase, as there is now an AI phase. Yeah. I, I think machine learning is really interesting, and there's no doubt that large language models can very confidently predicts the next word that might fit in a sentence or as an answer to where should I take my girlfriend for dinner in London. What I don't think any of those things can do is, is reason or even understand the question. Yeah. so They're not answering
1: know. the question. They're just no. not guessing what yes. an appropriate
0: continuation of the pattern is. Exactly. And so I think a, luckily, I I wouldn't say it's a failing, I I identified it and I realised that this is is not, there's no value here. The, The value is actually developing people who care and who are competent and they are worth a lot of, you know, the expertise, the kind of value you get from someone who is competent Is, is, um, is humble in the face of, you know, uh, very senior stakeholders in very large organizations, but can deliver, uh, good results is massive. So I think I was, I was attracted and and quickly put off the kind of quick wins. Yeah. From, from technology platforms and that kind of thing. And, and I, I think one, one very interesting thing about cyber insurance is, you know, even as an attorney and and you know, with 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 some level of seniority, there was there was kind of a ceiling above which you wouldn't talk to stakeholders. The thing we have as incident responders is I could be talking to the CFO, CMO, CISO of a very large entity and and essentially giving them advice or 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 you know, trying to partner with them and speak to them and 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 help them. And and again, you really need people who have, they're not just good attorneys or people with retail experience or threat intel analysts. They they have those soft skills that they can speak to people in a way in which they can engage, they can maybe persuade or, or you know, advise. And they're, they're, there's just no way that can be replaced at the moment by anything other than kind of good people.
1: I, I think that's right. And I think people who embrace the technology as a tool to help them provide those services are gonna do really well. Like people who think they that soft skills are enough, you know, that's that they need you need both. And so you need to end but that that ability to build trust with a client is critical. And yes, that that, that trust building.
0: Yes. Yeah. For us, the tools help with with scaling, right? There's, you know, I can only be on so many calls per day, so there are some tasks for whom, I, you know, for which I'm not the right tool in the box, and there is another tool that probably is some level of automation. So you're right, you need both, and and you know, I think I was reacting where where we had a very people focused, attorney focused team. To suddenly, oh, we can we can do away with a lot of this with all these these tools. And now we've adopted a kind of medium where you have, as you say, deployed both and and use both in in where they're appropriate. Exactly.
1: Um, Describe ways in which you and your team adapt to changing client needs.
0: I would say that we listen. And look at trends. We are not the Mandalorian, right? There, the, there is no single way. <laughs> I love um, that. <laughs> we, we, uh, we have to adapt because, because honestly, the the threat landscape is changing so quickly, and threat actors are adapting techniques so fast. So, as as an example, uh, multifactor authentication was implemented by many cyber insurance carriers as a, as a minimum standard. Just as kind of property insurers might mandate sprinklers or or, or fire doors in a, in a property, you know, we mandated multi-factor authentication and a couple of other controls that, that literally saw a huge drop off in incidents of certain types like business email compromise. But now they're starting to climb again because threat access have adapted and they're getting quite good at doing... Attacks against people with multi factor uh, multi factor fatigue man in the middle so that is so crucial to how we adapt to our, our our clients' needs. our clients' needs are driven by the environment they operate in, and you know they they may have new products they may have new you know uh, new regions new offices as i said but but really, they're, they're operating in, in, a, in a commercial environment, in, a, in an operational environment where there are new risks emerging all the time. And our job is, I don't know about predicting those risks, but we see trends. And when we engage with our, our clients, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, yeah, we're seeing this trend. We think it's going this way. You You might want to think about doing this particular thing. So. Again, using a slightly technical example, many organisations implemented MFA with with a, a challenge via SMS message, or a challenge with just a dialogue box that would pop up and say, "Louisa, were you trying to log in?" And the problem with that is, you know, if I'm sitting at home trying to watch something on Netflix, but my daughter, as usual, is still on the remote <laughs> control and wants to watch something else, I might be tempted to just dismiss that that pop up. So so now we have challenge based MFA, which says please enter the two digits on your screen. And now if you're watching Netflix at home, you know, you, you don't know those two digits. That's the threat actor trying to access. So it's an example of how, yes, we adapt to needs by trying to identify trends, understand where, where those risks are going and help our clients see that. That maybe even if they don't think they're susceptible, it's a trend that may impact them in the future. This response just resonates
1: so much with me. I played a lot of sports as a kid and my daughters are very play a lot of sports and this is something I think in in sports is just drilled into athletes of you have to be looking ahead don't look at your feet because that happened you you need to look where where things are going and move to those spaces and just watch look you know scanning the field where's the space go yeah. to that space when you're skiing, if you look at your feet, you're going to fall. You have to look 20 feet ahead. And I just pounded that into my kids as, as children and they get it. But I think so many people don't, they, they live their life looking at where they are right now, instead of lifting up their chin and looking ahead.
0: Yeah, I think the difficulty is there are so many things right at your feet, so many yeah. problems, <laughs> that, that it does require discipline to look ahead. I think the other the other more difficult thing is uh, I, I remember when I, I I moved companies and my my mother, the very motivating uh person yeah. in my life, was kind of telling me, You're dumb, you're dumb, why are you moving? You had a good job, Why, why are you risking everything? What are you doing? And um nobody has well, there are very few people who stay 20 years in a company, right? Yeah. People move, people want career progression, and often the easiest way to get that is, is to, to move organization. So I do feel sometimes even people in, in quite senior positions, you know, like CISOs, they're moving every, you know, two to five years. They're very stressful jobs. I, I'm, I'm yeah. you know, I would absolutely not have the temperament to be a CISO. I would not sleep. <laughs> But if you're moving every three years, you're, you're not looking to the horizon. So implementing zero trust, right, was it was, yeah. was a kind of, you know, it's a goal out there for many. But implementing zero trust is going to take two, three, four, five years. Date, document retention programs take multiple years. And I think that that's the problem is many stakeholders are just focused on getting to their next budget challenge, getting to the yep. end of year you know hitting their their targets for them to have the headspace and discipline to say well i'm gonna i'm gonna build something that my successor is gonna reap the rewards from i think that you know the expression is you know i'm I'm building a tree so that you know my my future yeah future generations may sit under may benefit from the shade i i don't see a ton of that in business
1: I, i i can see that point because i i Again, they're a cost center. They're not a profit center. How are they going to spend those dollars to make themselves look good, <laughs> or the next generation look good? And you know, hopefully, if you're hiring someone for that position for your organization, you get the person who's looking ahead for the gen- next generation. But that's not that's a
0: difficult that's a difficult one. That is difficult, and that's that's culture. That's motivation. You know, my team needs to solve complex problems i need people who care but are intelligent as well and it's difficult to to find the right combination it's quite tricky yeah uh let's see i think we're
1: getting i think we're coming up on the hour so let's let's follow let's wrap up with uh, this is a good question to wrap up with what do you recommend to anyone who wants to have a successful career in the in incident response or cyber insurance generally it,
0: well i i was gonna say i i think th- my only insights my my insights will probably apply to any career any 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 work even better I think, <laughs> yeah i think you I hate the word passion. I don't, I do not have passion for cyber incident response. <laughs> I'm intellectually stimulated by it. I care about doing it well. And I think if you can have those two things, it doesn't have to be an all consuming passion, right? Um, we're, we're, you know, we're solving business problems and that's, that's super interesting. Um, so I think if it's, if you can find something that you enjoy doing, and I'm not saying put it doesn't have to put a smile on your face, but something that is intellectually interesting, interesting people, whatever it is, I think that is a great starting position because you're at least going to have some enthusiasm, motivation to to continue on that path. And I would say park any very long term aspirations. I did not know. As I said, I, I wanted to be an architect. I had no inkling I was going to get into cyber incident response. I had settled down to be an IP lawyer and because of, you know, things that happened with my law firm and the clients they had. And then the fact that my then girlfriend, now wife wanted to move to Hong Kong where she had spent some time as a trainee, as a junior lawyer. None of these things were bad. <laughs> and so I think I'm, I'm not saying close your eyes and just kind of leap forwards, you know, be thoughtful, but. Don't assume that taking one decision or another is necessarily leading you down one path. Yeah. Hindsight is a great thing, right? Uh, yeah. So, so I think be open, try and find something that you find intellectually stimulating or interesting. And I think in terms of you progressing or, or getting more responsibility, every single job I've had, and you know, I have stack shelves in the equivalent of Walmart uh, <laughs> in the UK. I have had bar jobs, I have had, you know, I've been a waiter, I've been all kinds of things. If you get a reputation for delivering, if you do your job, you're competent, and if somebody says to you, can you do this for me and you do it, that is how you get more responsibility. That is how you build trust with coworkers, managers. And I I think that is a formula. That has been my formula. That that kind of gets me The right to then say, "Well, Louisa, actually, I'd quite like to do this thing over here. Would you let me try this out? If I've delivered for you on on the kind of boring stuff, I spent the first six months the first six months of my legal career photocopying, (laughs) and uh, I tried to do it with a smile on my face. I don't think I had a smile the whole time, but you know that that gave me the agency with my with my part the partner I sat with to say, "Well, uh, can I just? Do you mind if I sit in on that client meeting? Yeah, "Yeah, sure, just just don't say anything." um just (laughs) sit in the corner and take notes thank you very much yeah that that's fine by me
1: yeah it's good advice i think and it is consistent with everything you said during this uh this episode i think that 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 sort of approach to things runs through um
0: your philosophy of of incident sometimes i feel like you should put a disclaimer whenever i talk you know, like this medication may cause side effects. <laughs> it's not your physician before following Raph's advice, but Hey, hopefully I haven't said anything to No,
1: specific. it's good advice. And I think, I do think, you know, it's like, I just watched my daughter was home. We watched the Harry Potter movie where he takes the, the luck potion. And he's like, I'm going down to Hagrid's. And they're like, no, no, you have to go here. I just know that this is the way to go. And yeah, it's that yeah. is kind of how, most people i know that are fulfilled in their careers that it is they haven't followed a plan of that's been laid out and step by step most people that have kind of happiness and fulfillment have taken a very wandering path um mm. that's been right for them
0: yeah no i definitely agree with that uh,
1: well it's been great to have you on the on
0: the show and uh thank you for coming Well, no, thank you, Louisa. And um, yes, I hope that was of some interest. And that concludes this episode
1: of the Tech Insurance Leaders podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Join us next time as we continue to bring you the latest industry trends, expert insights, and strategies to navigate the ever-evolving world of insurance. Thank you for listening. And until next time.